I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. I'm going to do a solo show today. It's been a very long time since I've done that, I think, maybe a year ago. Um, no real reason why I haven't done one since then. Uh, I, I always seem to have things that I want to rant about, but which often coincide with whatever conversation that I'm bringing to you. So I normally talk about those things in the intro. And at least as of the past year and a half or so, I felt that I wanted to reserve the solo shows that I did for something important. So less just a few things I wanted to mention or talk about, um, but more something broader that I've been thinking about that's maybe been... Uh, with me and sort of percolating within me for a period of time. So I had this idea um, that wasn't really an idea necessarily, right? It was sort of more of a a culmination or the coalescing of lots of different ideas that I've been thinking about and lots of different things happening in my life, both personally and collectively and Anyway, it felt like something that was probably going to be too long for an intro and deserving of its own episode. So here we are. Um, one of my favorite books that I've spoken about on this podcast quite a bit, um, and if you haven't heard me talk about it before, I'm glad you're hearing me talk about it now because it was definitely a life-changing book for me to read, uh, which was Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. And the reason I think it affected me so deeply and why it changed so much for me was um, because of a, a multitude of different reasons. Um, but maybe one of the most important reasons was, first of all, I recognized myself so much in this book. I felt as if I was definitely the person that Alice Miller was talking about when she wrote this book. And it taught me a really important lesson that I, since then, have not been able to stop thinking about and a lesson that I apply in my life intentionally um, as often as I possibly can, as often as I'm conscious and aware to do it, which is to see that most things have two sides. We talk about nuance on this podcast a lot. We talk about paradox. We talk about how one thing can have multiple different meanings. And that's a vital, vital lesson to learn, in my opinion, in order to live a full and honest life that promotes 
self-awareness and humility and growth. And yes, for sure, um, those things within us. Uh, so understanding and embracing nuance and paradox is a way to be honest with ourselves. But also, of course, if we can't be honest with ourselves, we can't be honest with anyone else. So this tool of nuance and embracing multivalence within our life to varying degrees um, is helpful in discerning uh, our own behavior and our own self, but also every single person we come into contact with. So uh, th this book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, um, it speaks about how depression and what Miller coins grandiosity um, are basically two sides of the same coin. So I had grown up um, with exposure to people who were both grandiose. So this is like your sort of perfectionist, hard worker, super intelligent, super logical, can like rationalize anything they want to type of personality, high achiever. And then I'd also been exposed to people with depression. So stuckness, like basically the opposite of grandiosity, not really being able to doing to do anything, feeling um uh, sort of frozen and stagnant. And of course, depression being different than grief, right? So grief is like the active process of, of suffering and being sad and dealing with pain. And depression is something that's stuck, the energy isn't moving, the water becomes stagnant and sort of bacteria ridden. And I think, you know, I recognized the depression for what it was, I recognized how the depression was keeping people or the people that I knew, at least from living their truest, most authentic lives, I saw how it kept them from pursuing their goals. Um, so this energy, this expression was very clear to me as something that was sort of negative. But because I was on the grandiosity side, um, it wasn't something I recognized very often in people as a trait um, that wasn't great, that wasn't super admirable, because I was doing it as well, right? So what could be wrong about the sort of high achiever, high performer, perfectionist? Um, they're doing what they set out to do, you know, they're making lots of money, they're really accomplished, they bought a house, they lived in that house, this was my life, right? I could I could sort of hide very easily behind my accomplishments. My worth was defined by external forces, so things that um, weren't really in my control. And of course, objectively, it's not a bad thing, right? And this is where the nuance comes in relative to this book. To be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish in life, to be able to um, identify what you want and then go get it, uh, to do a good job, to like follow deadlines, to be impressive, to succeed. These are all not inherently bad, but they are bad if your entire self-worth is defined off of them. And I read this book at an interesting time in my life where I had been very successful. I did very well, at least in college, not high school, but I think that was mostly just because I wasn't super interested in what I was doing. But once I was able to fo focus on things that interested me, I worked very, very hard at them in college and beyond that. I was always successful at work. I Every job I interviewed for, I got. I worked really hard. I moved up really quickly. I was managing people and lots of money um, very early on. And I'd spent a good 
you know, 10 years, basically, well, maybe a little less than that, seven, eight years in my 20s um, as a very sort of successful, at least on the surface, at least on paper type of a person. And when I read this book was at a point at which um, I was in the deepest, darkest midst of a dark night of the soul, a spiritual awakening, um, a rock bottom moment in my life, however you want to define it. And I was sort of um, by various means stripped of a lot of those external uh, things that I that I valued and that I based my own personal self-worth on. So my sort of like health and good looks, let's say, was one of them. And my health is sort of ironic because I actually wasn't super healthy for most of my life, but I ate really well and my whole job was in the natural products industry and I had a health and wellness blog and I ate a paleo diet like before anybody had ever heard of it. Uh, so health was a priority for me and my sort of busyness around staying healthy and around eating the right things was in effect a distraction from the fact that I wasn't healthy. But all that to say, I sort of gave off the appearance that I was. Um, my looks and my body image was another one of those things. I think I, I don't think I'm a supermodel or anything, but I never found myself to be super unattractive. I was very privileged in that sense that I just was like, okay, you're a pretty generically pretty person. It doesn't have to be exceptional, but it was something I didn't worry about. It was some body image was not something that I struggled with. It was something that I sort of relied on at like at the end of the day, you know, at least I'm not overweight or I'm don't think I'm ugly or have some sort of deformity. Um, Anyway, what was going on during this period of time is that I had decided that the life that I was living was no longer the life that I wanted to live, and I decided to get a divorce, which sort of coincided, um, I think this was the last uh, solo podcast that I ever did, uh, which was last fall, I don't know the number off the top of my head, the episode number, but it was called You Can't Rush Your Healing. So if you're curious at all about that more specific specifically what that journey was about, um, specifically related to health, but related to many, many different things. Uh, I would recommend going back and listening to that. Um, anyway, so at that time I'd gotten divorced. I was sort of forced into moving out of my house. Um, I became extremely physically sick. Um, and I was going through a lot of pain. I was sort of confronting a lot of my own trauma. And the, the sickness specifically that I was suffering from was severe acne on my face. Um, and acne uh, doesn't really necessarily even uh, describe what I was going through. It's sort of like the most severe, severe, severe form of acne. So my entire face was red and hurt and uh, this lasted for a very long time. And um, in this period of time, I was sort of faced with the fact that all of these things that were outside of me that I didn't have any control over were defining of my self-worth. So at the time I'm here, I'm the, you know, the blogger of like a health and wellness site. So I'm sort of bragging about how I know about health and wellness. Um, there's all these pictures of me on the internet, like talking about acne because I'd struggled with it for some time and how I, you know, had figured out how to, how to cure it. And meanwhile, clearly I hadn't. 
Um, and I was just incapacitated on so many levels. So everything that I defined as valuable or that defined my worth, my marriage, my house, my, my income, um, I was not only feeling unable to continue to pursue my health blog, but I was also doing food photography and marketing for uh, natural products brands at the time. Um, and although I continued to do that, uh, just because of the emotional state that I was in, the physical state that I was in, it was really hard to continue to do that work. So all of these things disappeared. And I remember at one point, I think it may have been prior to me actually reading Drama of the Gifted Child, but I, I, I had some sort of question. I don't know when it occurred to me, probably when I was meditating or dancing or in the bath or something, but I remember a question popped into my head, which was, Anya, if you lost an arm or if you like lost a limb, if something like seriously, physically long-term and permanent happened to you, would you still love yourself? And the answer was very clearly no. And that kind of freaked me out and got me thinking about, okay, well, what else do I define my self-love on? Are any of these things in, in my control? Does this have anything to do with the actual person I am? Do I know who I am? Or is my entire identity uh, defined by, you know, all of these things that I've accomplished and all of these things that I've done well in my life that could disappear or I could be unable to do them at any given time? And then I read Drama of the Gifted Child and you know, this is written by a therapist who basically describes that both depression and grandiosity, what I suffered from and what I would imagine a lot of you listening have probably suffered from, um, is the same. And both are coping me mechanisms uh, for various things, but often coping mechanisms for not confronting the um, traumas that we've suffered or the ways in which we feel inadequate, ways in which we don't feel valued, ways in which we don't feel seen. There, It's accommodation for something. So these expressions, depression, grandiosity, look very different, but they really are just two sides of the same coin. They are both avoidance. They're both fear. They're both um, disassociative in a way. And unlike depression, grandiosity... I think is able to exist in the shadows much more often because it looks good on paper, right? Like I was able to say all the right things, even to therapists to some extent. I was able to, through my intelligence, through my accomplishments, um, through my, I think, interpersonal skills, which were sort of developed um, out of trauma in many ways. You know, there's something that I wrote uh, during this period of time as well, that was like, you're brilliant because you had to be to survive. So all of these ways that I learned how to succeed and be perfect and, you know, be seen for how good of a job I did, uh, these, these things were good in the sense that like, okay, it's, it's good that I'm intelligent, I guess. It's good that I, was able to talk to people in like a smart way and get ahead. But if those things are, are um, unexamined and being expressed in an uh, unconscious, unintentional way, then they can be self-harming, right? So at this point, like once I've come to terms with all of my shit, I don't cease from being smart or good at things. It's just that I'm no longer using being smart or good at things to cover up my fear or to cover up the lack of processing I've done around how I was hurt or how I was raised. 
Um, so I had to develop these skills that allowed me to survive, that allowed me to flourish. Uh, so they're good in a vacuum, those skills. Um, but it's not okay to not look at where those things came from and where they originated. So all of that to say, I learned an important lesson by reading that book, which was one, I needed to dive deeper into my own um, issues around self-worth and self-love and cultivate qualities um, that couldn't be taken away from me, qualities that weren't defined by things like appearance, success, etc., um, but I also learned how easy it is and how common it is to express something or use something in a negative way that sounds or looks really good on paper. I'm currently watching The Vow, which um, is another really perfect example of this, where this group, um, its morals, its ethics were defined by and... Um, were defined by things that sounded fine, right? This was self-improvement. This was about confronting limiting beliefs. For those of you that don't know, The Vow is a show on HBO, a documentary about the cult Nexium, uh, which really only at the sort of highest levels was cult-like. I think all of it was sort of pyramid schemey, um, but so many things are these days, and these sort of self-improvement seminars are so commonplace that I do think the lower ranks of them were actually probably all right and beneficial to people if they didn't get caught up in, you know, growing in the company and um, at the very high end, like getting a brand and having sex with the founder. Um, but even at those highest, most insane levels, the whole thing was framed around, you know, self-improvement and gaining control over one's own life and not letting fear overtake you. Like all of those things are good lessons. All of these things are, you know, the sort of tenets of a lot of psychotherapy, so it's not that those things in and of themselves are bad, but they can be used badly. You know, I talk so much about cults and narcissism on the show. And the way that this works is not that these people are out there, you know, shouting crazy things and I want you to come follow me and give me money or have sex with me because I have these ridiculous ideas that don't make any logical sense. They're often very... Uh, socially adept. They are smart, charming, charismatic people who know how to say the right thing, as did I in my therapy sessions, you know, when confronted with something. But look at my life and all these logical, rational explanations that I can give for everything and show you that I'm fine and that I'm not making any mistakes and that I don't need to dive deeper into any of these things, right? Like I was doing this on a, the, on a spectrum, uh, but it was the same type of behavior as I think cult leaders do, um, where you can use good information to excuse bullshit time and time again. And of course, not only can we do these things and lie to ourselves and to other people, but if we're unconscious of that nuance of the fact that one thing can have a um, uh, one thing can have multiple meanings, then we're also at risk of falling victim to someone else doing that to us, using good logic, using charisma, using intelligence to convince us that something is okay when in fact it isn't. Um, and I wonder, this has certainly been the case for me, that I think for some of us who 
are blind to the fact that we're doing this. We're sort of, you know, covering something up with grandiosity. If those people are the most vulnerable to falling victim to this, um, with someone else, you know, if, if we're not conscious of it within ourselves, how could we possibly be conscious of someone else doing this? And unfortunately, I think in this day and age, this stuff is rampant. And I haven't philosophized, you know, enough about it to fully give my take on why that is. But I do think when something is happening so frequently in the collective, themes pop up you know, both in our personal lives and in the collective, I think those things are mirrors of each other, that it's trying to bring something to our attention, you know, so why is it that we have all these uh, documentaries at the moment coming out about these, you know, sort of recent cults, we have Trump, we have QAnon, there's a lot of talk about narcissists, a lot of talk about gurus, certainly on my podcast, but also on a lot of podcasts, you know, and, and the guests that I bring on the show have been thinking about these things as well. So that's just a question, I guess, you know, why is this coming up at this particular time? And what is it trying to get us to look at? For me, it's been important uh, for so many different reasons, I think, um, obviously, because it's important for me to grow. So, you know, I, I think, uh, for example, throughout our 20s, we are still discovering who we are, or we're trying to remember who we are, because we sort of had an idea of what that was when we were younger. But for various reasons, pressures, people we were around, options in the world, opportunities, we took a different route. And so I think, especially this happens in our 20s, that we are sort of constantly sort of 180-ing between certain things. You know, I thought I wanted this, but actually I want this. I thought I wanted this. And then I think we sort of go through a process, or hopefully we go through a process of maturation. I think this is something that myself and many people go through in their late 20s, although I know people who go through it a bit earlier than that, and of course later than that, or never. Uh, but we get to the point where we do understand who we are. And so when I say nuance is important because we need to be open to grow, I don't mean that for our whole lives we should be flip-flopping between what our morals are or what our values are or, you know, what defines our integrity. I think at a certain point we become who we are and then the evolution that comes after that is is more of an evolution, right? Not a revolution. And I think those evolutions, which are just in my opinion, uh, broadening the sort of color wheel of how much we know about ourselves. So we're broadening our the comprehensive nature of our identity, which I think is like an iceberg, right? Most of it is underwater, and um, we only see the very tip, but the more we can see the parts that are underwater, uh, the more full and individuated we become, the more whole we become. So it's always good to take an idea, to take a fragment of our identity and see it evolve in its own ripples, right? Like see it become more clear, become more colorful, become more complex. So that's one important reason to embrace nuance and sort of stay open to this evolution. And the other is because uh, this is also something I've talked about on the podcast. But I think when we discover something about ourselves that we don't feel okay with, or that we decide is toxic, or we suffer a trauma, um, we tend to run as fast as we can in the opposite direction, right? So 
for me, I've talked about before, like I was in a lot of really unhealthy, talk, unhealthy, toxic, um, codependent relationships with people. And this was all I knew. And so when I first came to terms with this, when I first became aware of it, I thought, okay, well, ser- clearly I can't do relationships properly. And I'm, I was thinking about uh, specifically romantic relationships. Clearly, I can't do this properly. Clearly, this doesn't work for me. So I need to just opt out. I need to be by myself. I need to develop independence, all of that. And of course, all of that is necessary. I did need to sort of develop independence and um, go to therapy and uh, consider and reflect upon why my relationships were unhealthy and what role I played in them. But that 180 running, that flip-flop from okay, well, I can't have healthy relationships, so I'm just never going to have any at all. That's a reaction to something. That's not a solution to something. So, you know, if let's say we were harmed by um, a sexual dynamic or a romantic relationship in which power was abused, and we say, fuck that, you know, fuck power, like I want to be in a world in which everything is equal. That's a reaction, not a solution, because to live in a world without any sort of power dynamic or to involve trusting or being dependent on someone is unrealistic. So it's a reaction, not a solution. And I think it's always important. I think we do this a lot. And I think it's vital and necessary that we do. Because a lot of the times those mistakes that we're making are patterns. We're very tightly engaged in them or looped up in them. And we really have to like extract ourselves. And this can happen with, you know, this happened to me with a relationship with a family member. Like I decided this is super toxic. Uh, this isn't working. I can't, I don't know how to set boundaries here. I need to just opt out of this entirely. Like the way that this relationship is affecting my life is making me think really badly about myself. And I'm hearing those voices in my head, regardless if I, even if I'm talking to the person or not. Um, so I need to just get as far away as I can from this, uh, because I need to define myself and I need to rewrite these stories in my head. Um, But that didn't necessarily mean that I had to stay there, right? So maybe once I did that, maybe once I built up my self-worth, maybe once I built up my own identity, I learned how to set boundaries, I grieved whatever I needed to grieve as far as the realities of that relationship, then maybe I can cycle back around at some point and have a much different, um, more evolved, more conscious uh, and healthy relationship with that person. But of course, it was necessary for me to opt out of it for a while, to not talk to that person for a while. But that didn't mean it was this solution. It was just a path to the solution. It was just the initial reaction to the fact that there was a problem. So I like to think about this in my own life sometimes. And sometimes there are things that I do when and I'm not really noticing that I'm doing them. And that's sort of the basis of this podcast, where I had this epiphany that I started this podcast, for those of you especially that have been listening from the beginning, you know that one of the reasons I started this podcast, it's something that I've mentioned in every sort of iteration of the intro that I've done, that I was sick of of the stereotypes about millennials. And for a long time prior to starting this podcast, I was really embarrassed and ashamed about being a young person. And um, I had sort of, I guess, started to not identify with the stereotypes necessarily, but just assume they were true. So even if I didn't identify with them, I was sort of taking them on as truth. And that felt shitty. And um, 
I really wanted to in this podcast be like, that's not my experience. You know, I'm not super triggered and I'm not overly sensitive and I'm not lazy and I'm not entitled and screw that. You know, I don't identify with those things. And this entire podcast is going to be um, showcasing how that's not true, how it's not true for me, how it's not true for so much of this community. And recently, I've started to realize that maybe those stereotypes, um, you know, and I guess it's debatable whether they're stereotypes or not, whether they're true or not. I do think that I did see expressions of truth in them, if not within myself, then certainly within other millennials, right? So, okay, maybe I don't feel like triggered and I don't want to, you know, police language and do all these things, but I certainly do see that happening in the world with young people. Uh, so maybe this podcast is not just rallying, rallying against those stereotypes, but also sort of pushing up against millennials who are exhibiting those traits and telling them they can do better or, you know, they can step up to the plate and be more mature. And I think it's only recently that I've been spending time with young people um, my age, a little younger than me, a little older than me who I really admire and who are super smart. And I think especially the ones who are younger, because I think they sort of embody, I don't want to say embody the stereotypes more, but they, they, they embody or just showcase these traits of young people um, even more strongly than I think, you know, people of exactly my age group. Um, so, I've been spending time with these people that are more self-identified with being a young person in the context of this world. And I see the ways in which they are, and me too, I just needed them to, sh to mirror this for me, but sort of um, sinking into and embodying these traits a little bit more and showing how and exemplifying how they can be used for good or um, showcasing how they are not necessarily negative. So maybe it's not that millennials are not triggered or that being triggered is bad 100%. And maybe it's not that we're not sensitive or that being sensitive is bad. Maybe what's going on right now and, and maybe what happened for me is that I did a 180 reaction to something. And now I'm coming to a place where I'm starting to think about these characteristics of being triggered, of being sensitive, of being quote unquote lazy or entitled. And I wonder whether or not there's, an, there's a healthy, nuanced expression of those things, right? Maybe we need to change the word a little bit. And I'm going to dive into those four stereotypes in particular, because I think they're the most common. Um, but maybe it's not that we need to reject these things. Maybe we need to redefine them. We need to redefine them for ourselves so that we're using them in a more beneficial way. Um, and because we were labeled as these things or maybe trained as these things or these things were projected on us, uh, instead of embodying the shadow expression or instead of rejecting the shadow expression, that we can embody the positive expression and acknowledge the shadow, but we don't have to participate in it. And I think this is just such a much more comprehensive and meaningful way of living life. 
Um, I think this is one of the reasons that I've always loved astrology so much, and more specifically, the sort of multivalence of the archetypes. Um, everything can have multiple meanings. You know, we don't have to see our feelings or identity as static. Like if we struggle with, for example, let's take the archetype of Mars or Aries. If we struggle with anger or stubbornness or selfishness, how can we identify that as just one expression of an overarching archetype, which also contains things like bravery and healthy boundary setting and leadership and, you know, embracing fear, right? So all of these are contained under this one archetype. And that's freeing in a way, because we don't have to push against anything. We don't have to escape anything. You know, we don't have to deny anything. We can just shift our focus. We can maneuver and move and shift the archetype um, into its healthy expression. We can move it from being more unconscious to conscience. We, conscious. we can move it from being um, more of a shadow expression to a healthy expression. And this is actually kind of fun, um, at least for me. <laughs> I think it's fascinating to look at something archetypally, and, and it is my belief that I think so many things are defined archetypally. Um, this is why, you know, in The Vow, for example, he's using this tool of um he being the founder this tool of sort of servitude and um allow getting one control over one's life and accomplishing things and not being ruled by fear uh let's say that's umbrellaed under a virgo archetype those are all okay but of course once we move to the shadow expression of it or the more unconscious expression of it when it becomes perfectionism and um, self-sacrifice in a negative sense and submission in a self-erasing sense, then that's no longer okay. It doesn't mean the archetype is bad. It just means that expression of it is bad. And so if we look at ourselves like this, when we act in a way that's not great, uh, it doesn't mean we're bad. It just means we can look to and move toward expressing that in a different way. Uh, we don't have to reject that quality. We can just evolve that quality in sort of a slow, cautious, um, and careful way that allows for this growth, right? Allows for this broadening of identification about oneself, about the world, um, and about others. And I think this fluidity and this honesty about comprehensive, nuanced expressions of something might also help us in situations where we've made a commitment to something or we've um, identified with a trait or a, a characteristic about ourselves. Uh, we've, you know, been at a job for a long time or we've been in a relationship for a long time or we've been in a cult for a long time. And we, if we can see the nuance here, if we can see that like, oh, okay, at one point, you know, I entered into this because I thought it was the right thing to do, because I thought it aligned with my values. I'm now realizing that either it never did or it doesn't anymore. And maybe we wouldn't be racked with such shame and fear about being okay with like moving beyond it um, if we were from the start and within the process more aware of nuanced expressions of things, right? So 
I hate to keep using the vow as an example, but I think it's an important example, but of course is just existing on a spectrum. I think you could talk about this in any sort of like pretty neutral, uh, maybe slightly codependent or unhealthy friendship even. Um, but when we recognize how, you know, I think it becomes easier as we go to recognize something for what it is to develop our discernment and decide whether something is healthy or not. Um, and I do think this often happens or hopefully happens at the time that we do go through a sort of dark night of the soul, the point at which we understand who we are, and then all of our future selves are just evolutions on that theme. I do think it gets easier and easier not to enter into something toxic. Um, but it still can happen. And it can certainly happen when we're younger, when we haven't developed these tools of discernment, when we haven't put in the work to fully understand ourselves and therefore understand other people. I wonder if like the people, these women who were sort of hooked into this cult, at least the highest levels of it, through ideas around relinquishing control, through ideas around honesty, around trust, around even submission, um, letting someone else drive while you nap, for example. What I would imagine is that these women, something about what they were being offered um, in a non-specific sense was appealing to them. And when it, and it becomes so hard to break free from it because I think uh, the whole entire dynamic is seen as toxic, right? So someone learns about this cult and they see that language, power-laden um, language was used and control mechanisms were used. It's more nuanced than to say that all of those things are bad all of the time. And I wonder if the people inside the cult, that that's what they're reacting to. What they're pushing back up against is that initial feeling for them of, but this seemed like it was a good idea. This seemed like something that appealed to me and that was helpful for me. And maybe if I and the people around me who found out about this were more accommodating and um, a little kinder and more nuanced in their approach to say, like, maybe we can find something for you that holds these principles, but practices them in an aligned, healthy way that helps you grow, not restricts your calories and makes you feel like shit, right? Um, maybe it would be easier to leave when we don't just outright reject someone's decision, someone's life, someone's values in their entirety, but um, we can all sort of sit together and say like, hey, I get why you were here. I get why you're afraid to leave. I get why that's, this is such a mind fuck. Um, because it seemed like on all these different levels that this could work. And it's unfortunate and sad that it didn't work in this case and traumatic and toxic and criminal. I mean, it, you know, it can get really bad. Um, but we have to be, you know, mature enough to recognize that even in the most severe, toxic and unhealthy circumstances, it's nuanced and it's complicated and it can change and it can evolve. So I digress, but my point in all of this is to say, I think this embracing of nuance and in um, the uh, complex expression of lots of different things would help us 
in so many different ways in knowing ourselves, in knowing others, in practicing discernment, in order to admit we made mistakes, in order to learn from those mistakes, etc., etc. So I know I've talked about a few examples, but I really want to talk about examples specific to millennials and to this podcast, um, because I think examples are important, uh, especially especially for people with platforms, too, to actually talk about and um, show clearly how these things have affected them in their own lives and not just talk about ideas. Another big motivation in starting this podcast was my sort of horror of, of, and this is, I think, appearing more and more these days, but how many people with podcasts, with platforms, with degrees, with all these special things under their name, all these sort of like grandiose kind of narcissistic uh, types of expression of um, uh, power and influence. You know, I was really disappointed to learn how, and maybe this, this is my own naivete, but really disappointed to learn how many of those people just talk about ideas, but don't actually practice any of this and don't really understand this in any kind of an experiential way. So they might totally, you know, they've read a bunch of books and they can recite the lessons in the books, but if they're not following those lessons, um, then in my mind, it's, uh, it's manipulative and it's unhealthy and it's a lie and um, it can create really sort of toxic power stru structures, I think, uh, when it comes to influencers and gurus and leaders of any kind, when you can talk a big game um, like I did in therapy, uh, but not actually practice any of those um, values in your personal life. So this is me <laughs> expressing how this idea has played out for myself, uh, specific to this podcast, which obviously all of you have listened to, or a lot of you have listened to it, um, and have listened to it for quite some time and have heard me talk about these ideas and have heard me define myself in the podcast in this way. And uh, I would just like to, in real time, sort of deconstruct some of these ideas that I railed against and discuss how they might be nuanced and how I might be starting to see them differently and also increasing my own self-identification within these categories. So what are these stereotypes? Uh, these stereotypes that I, there are a lot of them for millennials, but the ones that I wanted to talk about are that we're triggered, sensitive, lazy, and entitled. Triggered. I think I've probably talked about the nuanced nature of triggered maybe more than any other of these stereotypes on the podcast. It became very clear to me early on uh, when thinking about the concept of triggering and being triggered, I was very opposed to it. And the reason I was very opposed to it was because what it looked like to me is that someone said something or did something to someone that made them uncomfortable. And the person that got uncomfortable dealt with that situation by saying, that triggered me, uh, you're bad, and I need to extract myself from the situation immediately because... Um, you know, maybe you said something that reminded me of a, of a past trauma or you misgendered me or whatever the trigger was, um, it cued something in me. It made me feel uncomfortable. It reminded me of a bad feeling and um, that's not fair and you need to be silenced or you need to be edited or you need to be told and taught uh, how to behave differently in the future to accommodate my feelings and my sensitivities. And 
to me, this always bothered me because to me, even the word trigger, right? A, a, tr a trigger does what? It's an action that provokes something else. To me, that sounded like a very sort of initiatory uh, experience and an initiatory concept in words. So, okay, so if you're triggered, to me, it was like, how do I take a step into that? How do I walk up the mountain, not run away from the trail entirely? So I definitely, I think once I became more conscious of myself and my feelings and my past and my emotions and all of the things that I struggle with and the things that I'm most fearful of, the things, the patterns that recur in my life now that aren't necessarily the same event, um, but trigger a feeling for me about something that happened in the past. Uh, at first, I don't think I recognized those triggers very much. I was so unaware and out of touch with my emotions and my intuition. But I think eventually I did start to realize that I was triggered by certain things. But to me, it always uh, it sparked curiosity. And I think the more I got to know about myself, the more I got in touch with my emotions and my intuition, which I think is a quality of millennials. I think because of the tools we have over the internet and um, the information that we've been given and also just the circumstances of our lives, I think it's been harder for us than previous generations to deny the circumstances of the world and the circumstances of our upbringing um, from anything from terrorist attacks to school shootings, it, you know, to the financial collapse. There are all these things that happened right in front of us that I think that made it a bit easier for us to be like, okay, wait a second. Something's, this is fucked up. Whatever like lie or story we've been told about what we should be doing and what types of people we should be and what this country is about is clearly not true. And I think that sparked a lot of self-exploration for millennials. Um, and, and just education, you know, to learn about what trauma was, to learn about um, how subtle it can be and how common it is, and to recognize how in our daily lives that things happen that remind us of those core wounds, personal wounds, collective wounds, etc. So I do think because we are millennials because we grew up in the time that we did, because we had the resources and the tools available to us that we did. And of course, this is nuanced like anything else. Um, obviously, there's levels of sort of privilege and exposure here. But let's just say that a lot of us had more exposure than previous generations did. Uh, I think it's inevitable that then when things happen in the world that we're triggered. If you're more in touch with your triggers, then you're going to recognize being triggered. Um, and so here's an idea where being triggered, you know, is seen as an insult, is seen as the stereotype of millennials, you know, just want to tone police and they want to shame and they want to correct language and they want to fire people. Those, in my opinions, in my opinion, are all shadow expressions, unevolved expressions, unconscious expressions of being triggered. Whereas being triggered and using the trigger as an opportunity, like think of it as a light switch, right? Like the light switch was triggered, it was turned on, and now you can see what's in front of you and you can move toward it. And you might decide that that trigger was actually something very present and very real and very dangerous and your feeling of fear and discomfort was a sign that you should 
opt out of the situation that you're in or that someone was doing something wrong, but that's not the entirety of what could happen. Maybe that trigger was actually just trying to expose to you something about yourself, something about your past and your identity and your emotions that you weren't totally clear on before. Maybe you have more of a fear of abandonment than you realize. So someone does something, it triggers that fear of abandonment for you. And when you look into it deeper, when you explore in the room with the light on, you can see that that person actually wasn't abandoning you, that what they were doing was just reminding you of abandonment, right? So what that could mean is that you have a conversation with that person, you are vulnerable, and you admit to your fear and how these certain behaviors remind you of that, but you know that person cares for you, for you and, and isn't going to abandon you, and you ask to work on that abandonment thing with the person, right? That's a very constructive, very positive thinking, you know, more evolved and comprehensive way of dealing with it. Uh, so again, you know, unhealthy, unconscious expression of something or healthy, conscious expression. If we just reject the thing outright, millennials aren't triggered. Maybe then we don't get an opportunity to accept that we are triggered by things and how we can learn from them. Sensitive is another one of these. This is one that I've been thinking about the most recently and writing a bit about it in something I hope to bring all of you shortly. Um, this one was really interesting for me because I, I could sort of trace this back uh, in my own life, in my own history quite far, where I, even before I had an awareness about myself, uh, the stories I was told about myself as a kid is that I was very sensitive and hyper aware. So I struggled with really severe colic when I was younger. Um, I was just really uncomfortable. Like I would throw fits around sort of small things. Um, I was very, very sensitive. I would, I think I was like making eye contact with family members within 24 hours of being born. And I lived in New York City up until I was one. Uh, and I would like sit, you know, in the little sling on my parents' chest and have these wide eyes and just sort of absorb everything and then reach a point of total saturation and freak out. And, you know, of course, sensitivity and hyper awareness in the context of a world that isn't ours, in the context of a more primitive, ancestral, indigenous world, that sensitivity is a gift. And I'm not, you know, in terms of how this stereotype was constructed, um, I think it's complicated and probably it was constructed in multi, in a, in a uh, multiple different ways. So maybe like, the reason I was sensitive or got labeled as sensitive is different than somebody else. Um, and I do think it's tied into the whole triggered thing. Like we've been able to explore more things about ourselves. And so therefore we're more sensitive. Um, and I also think it has something to do with entitlement that I'll talk about in a bit. Um, sensitive, the, the stereotype of sensitive being linked to the stereotype of being entitled. Um, but I think for whatever reason, whether it's because our parents, you know, you can read a bunch of articles online and they'll all talk about like where these stereotypes come from. This is what I've been doing the past couple of days. Um, and there's some idea that like, because our parents coddled us, um, because we were sort of more protected, you know, when we were young, like kidnappings were a lot more common. And of course there were terrorist attacks and school shootings and all these things I've previously mentioned. Um, and so we were, 
we weren't really able to go out in the world and take risks that may have like hardened us up a bit. Um, and therefore we were more sensitive or just the fact that we are all, no matter what generation you are born into, we are all sensitive and we have to turn that off because, you know, I think I, we spoke, I spoke about this a bit when I had Callie Russell on the show who lives for long, long periods of time out in the wilderness. And I've experienced this too, especially this past summer with the world being, with civilization being so intense and stressed out and on edge as it is, that when you're in nature, your senses are heightened. So your sense of smell and taste and all of this stuff, your nervous system, like, you know, it, it, it it's able to absorb more. It's, it's meant to absorb more because how do we live in nature if we're not sensitive to what's going on? If we can't smell something or hear something coming, you know, how are we supposed to do anything? How are we supposed to heal ourselves or heal someone else if we're reliant upon our senses and on nature? So, I, I do think that we're all primed for that as humans, like we're not evolved to live in an industrialized, patriarchal, capitalist society. We're primed to live in hunter-gatherer communities. That's still where our body, our genetics, and our nervous system want to be and think they are when we're born. Um, and at some point, I think through culture, through parents, through school, through the system, um, asking us to be something, asking us to participate in something. If we don't turn that sensitivity off, we can't survive. Like we go crazy. Everything's too much. Um, it's overwhelming. And so the sensitivity is split off, is shut down so that we can survive in the world. Now, I don't know why for millennials specifically, those shutting off mechanisms may have been less severe than before, but I do think they were. And I think part of that is what I mentioned before about these sort of lies or stories that we were told about what we could and should accomplish in this world and what this world was about and what it stood for was clearly not right. And so maybe as a result of that, we did spend more time in nature. We did spend more time questioning things. We took psychedelics. We um, rebelled a little bit more, smoked weed, did whatever we had to do to remind ourselves about what sort of clean and healthy sensitivity in a uh, safe world felt like. And therefore, that's why we were labeled as more sensitive, just because we were like everyone else. But those mechanisms of shutting down and shutting off were uh, less potent for us, which is, again, a sort of interesting privilege, right? Like, it's harder in many ways to exist in this world when you're more sensitive, but it's also an interesting thing to think about as a privilege or as a gift. Okay, so if we are too sensitive to live in this world, um, where can we go? Now, of course, like the triggered stereotype, um, sensitive can be negative. Sensitive can be unable to think critically about oneself, unable to have a balanced conversation about emotions, Um it can mean that we push away anything that is uncomfortable, again, like that trigger. So just because you're sensitive to something, just because something makes you upset doesn't mean that you should opt out of it or you should blame someone for it. Uh, but more is just an expression of you being human. And so if you can't um, function with this level of sensitivity in this iteration of something, then you need to move into something else. You need to change relationships. You need to change jobs. You need to change your entire way of living 
if you so choose. Uh, but again, there is this sort of positive and negative ex expression of sensitivity. And I do think that, again, in my life and in the people that I am now surrounding myself with, I do recognize this level of sensitivity. And I think not only in my whole life have I been this way, um, not only do I feel like it is this sort of stereotypical quality that I have or was labeled with, um, but again, going through a dark night of the soul or a spiritual awakening, like you start to become more in touch with your body. So I know now that watching the news every hour of every day uh, is not a healthy thing for me. I'm, I'm too sensitive to do that. It feels harder now than it did before. I remember four years ago when Trump got elected, um, which was right sort of at the beginning of this whole dark night of the soul that I had. Uh, I was watching the news all the time. And I think it was affecting me just as much. I think it was affecting my level of stress and anxiety and happiness and all of that just as much. And the only thing that changed was that I became more conscious of it. So I don't, I had a friend ask me recently, like, do you think you're more sensitive now than you were before if she's going through a sort of similar transition period of time in her life? And um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that the more we work on ourselves and the more we're honest about ourselves, about how our body feels in reaction to things and what our intuition is telling us, um, that we are all quite sensitive and uh, we probably always have been. And, you know, maybe, although some people want to criticize us for the sensitivity, that maybe this can work to our advantage to really organize our lives around the health of our minds and the health of our bodies. And um, that those things, um, while they could still be stereotyped or criticized, are admirable and are positive and to reject sensitivity, of course, uh, to 180, to react to that stereotype would be to deny the gift of what that sensitivity could bring us. Lazy. Um, this is a really interesting one. I, <laughs> I remember, I think it was last summer, I was in a restaurant, I was sitting next to a couple of people pre-COVID when we could actually sit in restaurants without masks and overhear people's conversations because they were sitting close enough to us where we could do that. Uh, I think it was like a per someone my age in their th 30s and someone a bit older than that. And the person in <clears throat> their 30s was sort of talking about like all of their accomplishments. They're probably suffering from grandiosity, but never mind. They were, I think it was some sort of job interview or some sort of like something like that. It seemed like one per the younger person was trying to impress the older person and talking about all of the things that he's done and the things that he's accomplished. And the older person kind of said like, oh, you're, you're kind of an exception. Like, it's really interesting that you're working so hard and so determined and motivated. You know, it's kind of rare for your generation. And it struck me because I think those are the only millennials I know, the, the like super hardworking, perfectionist, grandiose ones. Like that was, def that was definitive of the entire generation or of the, of anybody that I knew. So to hear this older person sort of be surprised by this like hardworking perfectionist millennial was almost amusing to me because it felt so untrue. And again, of course, a stereotype that I railed against. But in thinking more about it, 
especially like, okay, how did it come to be that older people think younger people are lazy? And so I started to think about like their day-to-day experience, especially growing up versus our experience. And it led me to believe that I, I wonder if what older people see as lazy is our uh, dismissal of and refusal to sell our souls for a job, for capitalism, uh, for some sort of patriarchal structure. I have a friend recently who got into a fight with her mother about capitalism because uh, this young woman said that she rejected capitalism and her mother literally yelled back in the argument and said, I gave my whole life to capitalism. How dare you criticize it? And I thought that was such a perfect example of how this lie, how this stereotype has come to pass. I don't think millennials are quote unquote lazy. I do think, however, the sacrifices and the sort of enslavement that our parents, most of whom were baby boomers or a bit younger than that, um, they sold themselves to the man in many ways. They sacrificed their dreams, um, which I think was especially painful for those parents who of, of us who were old enough to sort of go through the whole hippie movement. So it sort of went through this whole process of like expansion and possibility uh, to then like it didn't really work out. And so then what if that wasn't possible? Like, I guess we have to do what our parents did. I guess we have to just succumb to what the culture and the society wants from us. Uh, and I think that probably was particularly traumatic, even more so than for uh, parents who sort of opted into the system from the start, not to like compare traumatic experiences. But uh, I do think about that. My mother, for example, was in that generation. Certainly my dad was a bit younger than her. Anyway, um, if millennials, which I think we are, are basically like, you know what, if you're going to pay me shit, if I don't get vacation time, if I don't get health insurance, if I don't have equity in this company, if like I feel guilty about taking a day off to go to the bathroom, then I'm not going to work for you. Like I deserve more than that. That doesn't mean I'm lazy. That just means that I'm not going to put up with what my parents put up with. I'm not going to believe the lie that they believed. I'm not going to buy what they were sold and that they're trying to sell me. And of course, for people who did buy into that, the fact that we're rejecting it is a, is incredibly threatening. And instead of being seen as enlightened or mature or that, you know, our kids know better than we do, that's a very mature, evolved position to take. I think it's a lot more common and a lot more natural for someone to see that and to feel threatened and um, be confronted with the ways in which they weren't able to pursue maybe what their kids are, or they weren't able to value themselves and their worth as the younger generation is. And that's, again, um, if we do, if someone did confront that, that's very, uh, it's deep and it's intense and it's sad and there's a lot of grief there. And of course, I think we're all doing the very best we can to avoid those feelings as much as possible especially the older generations who didn't have the level of support or community or resources that younger people have uh, in order to question these things. And when I say resources, obviously, like I do think it was easier for our parents to buy into these jobs or these careers because they were 
making money. They weren't racked with student debt. It was more sustainable. Uh, but I think our resource is not, you know, a resource of the patriarchy or of capitalism. I think our resource is our awareness that those things um, don't work very well and don't make us happy and do not create any sort of a comfortable, safe or sustainable world. Um, so again, through our own uh, mental health awareness and honestly, through the ways in which there was just so much shit happening around us that it was impossible for us to buy into these fallacies. So is this laziness? Of course it can be, right? It can be, um, it's not to say there aren't millennials or just people in the world that are lazy. Lazy can have, uh, a very negative, unhealthy um, expression that prevents growth. But what if laziness just e what if laziness just equals pleasure and enjoyment and a reprioritization around self care and what matters and um, priority prioritizing oneself and one's you know nervous system health and happiness and emotions over uh, enslavement to the man. This, of course, doesn't mean that we are stuck or depressed or um, that we can choose pleasure over responsibility um, to ourselves and others. doesn't mean that. But of course, there is a healthy, positive and evolved expression of taking a break and being relaxed and um, taking more time in our lives to prioritize that. Entitlement. This one is fascinating. I think this is probably the one I've thought least about up until now, although it certainly is quite common for entitlement to be talked about when it comes to millennials. I think one of the most prominent examples is the whole participation trophy thing, which is interesting. Personally, I don't ever remember receiving a participation participation trophy. Like Sometimes I question whether that thing was real or not, although I'm going to assume it was even if I didn't necessarily, um, I also didn't like very competition very much when I was young. I didn't play a ton of sports. So maybe this is why I was unaware of participation trophies, but I read a really interesting piece about this or reflection on the stereotype related to participation trophies and also the entitlement of our parents. Uh, I talk a lot about psychological projection on the show. I think a lot of these stereotypes can be projections of older people. So maybe millennials aren't these things at all. Um, it's that our parents are these things and they're projecting it onto us. And I think entitlement is a really good example of this because I read this piece about how that the participation trophies weren't for like the sensitive, entitled millennials as kids. It was for their parents because their parents were entitled. And this historically or like anthropologically made more sense to me because I think our parents often, and of course, like millennials were born, uh, basically, if I'm not mistaken, like early 80s to mid 90s, sort of a little earlier than the mid mid 90s, early 90s. Um, but that our parents were sort of in the same um, realm as the previous uh, stereotype around being lazy. Our parents were sort of like grew up in or became adults within this whole like neoclassical sense of economics where things like consumption um, and independence and entitlement were all 
expressed as ways that not only individuals could get ahead, but people sort of below them could get ahead. It's very like, you know, kind of trickle down economics. Um, and so selfishness and this whole sort of like Ayn Rand way of looking at the world uh, where ownership is important. If we have ownership over something, we'll take better care of it. Um, if we promote and uh, expand things for ourselves, that that's the way things will help other people. It's a very kind of entitled, narcissistic um, expression of an archetype. And I think will be our ultimate downfall, but also uh, sort of the downfall of our generation in a way, maybe not the downfall of our generation, but I think it, that's going to end with our generation because I think endless um, unmanaged uh, selfishness is insane. I think our generation is becoming a lot more aware of how important community is and while and that and that we can still have an independent individuated life where we understand that our individual life has meaning um, and purpose and value that can exist within a communal environment like uh, those things are not mutually exclusive at all but I think our our parents and certainly uh, sort of spawned by right this is all cyclical so this is all influenced by generations and things that happened before our parents and before their parents etc but i think by the time things materialized with our parents um that this was sort of the ultimate ultimate expression of capitalism and patriarchy and hierarchy and prioritization of the masculine and uh I think a lot of what we're seeing right now, um, specifically how a lot of younger generations feel about the world around us, is the realization of how bad this has gotten um, and how insane it is and how harmful it is and how it's false. We were sold a false narrative. We cannot endlessly consume. We cannot endlessly grow our own individual wealth. We can't uh, buy up you know, common property. Uh, these things are exclusionary. These things are the wrong kind of progress. These things uh, keep us apart from one another, keep us apart from nature, prevent us from working together, prevent us from working for others, for nature, for ourselves. And I think when we mix in this whole, let's say, potential projection of entitlement from our parents onto us, and are like demanding of a better life and demanding of better structures and services and um, demanding of more awareness about our own health, the health of the planet. All of these together, I think, can manifest in these stereotypes. And I think stereotypes and projections, of course, I mean, the way that at least these generational ones take place, they're often focused on the sort of negative, the issues with any given generation. And I think there's a lot of options here. Either millennials are these things, either millennials are these things and they're expressing them specific to the way that they were projected upon them, right? So we can be actually lazy in a negative sense, sensitive in a negative sense, entitled in a negative sense, or Maybe these stereotypes that were projected onto us, given to us, are true. And it's up to us to embody them in the most healthy, comprehensive, honest, and beneficial way. 
I can now see two years after starting my podcast that being triggered, lazy, sensitive, and entitled can all work to my advantage and to our advantage just as much as they could be used to our disadvantage. And I think if we reject them outright, if we react to them and move away from them, we're missing out on an opportunity to actually sink our feet into our purpose and our privilege and our gift in this world and how our generation fits into a much larger cycle. So I do think we are these things. I do think in some ways millennials embody these qualities in a sense, of course. It's up to us to decide what to do. Again, we can reject them outright. We can embody the negative shadow side of them, or we can embody the healthy, conscious, and sort of forward-moving and forward-thinking expression of them. And that's where I'm at, personally. I am interested in becoming more embodied. I'm interested in becoming a more complex person. I'm not interested in running away. I'm not interested in protecting myself against what other people think of me. I really want to embrace these archetypes. This is collective archetypes, stereotypical archetypes, whatever, of this generation, and also in my own life. You know, how do we choose to use these things? People, when I was doing my astrology apprenticeship, and, and still when I talk to people about astrology a lot, they always sort of ask, they see these planets, these signs, these houses in their charts, they learn about especially the sort of pop astrology definition of these things, which can be very limited, very one note, um, sort of similar to the millennial stereotypes. It's just like, oh, lazy triggered. It's a very uh, lacking in nuance expression of, of archetypes. They're, they're not privy to the multivalence of these different archetypes. And so they sort of get freaked out like, oh my god, I have that weird placement. I have that weird um, conjunction or aspect in my chart and, you know, uh, Mercury is in its fall. Like how might I ever live because my chart is organized in the way that it does or, or how, how can I heal myself? How can I transcend these placements, these qualities in my life? But what if we didn't need to change or to heal out of them? What if we could just embrace ourselves for the multifaceted, complex, nuanced being that we are, look at these archetypes, these qualities, these behavioral traits in a more comprehensive way, acknowledge the ways in which we express some of these things negatively, deal with our anger, our sensitivity, our jealousy, our abandonment, and evolve that. What's the highest octave expression of abandonment. Maybe that person can learn how to trust and how to be dependent upon people and move beyond their abandonment into much more longer term, more intimate connections with people that could help others do the same in the future. I remember my dad said something to me when I was young, uh, when I was struggling with something, when I was really being hurt by someone um, and was taking a lot of what was going on personally and feeling really angry and frustrated. And my dad said something to me all growing up that I never really fully understand until I was an adult. Uh, but he would say, can you look at that person and what they're saying and what they're doing? Can you look at it through a kaleidoscope? Can you just separate yourself from it a little? 
Can you look at it in a new way? He wasn't asking me to run away from it. He wasn't denying it was happening. He was just saying, like, if you change your viewpoint slightly, is there another definition or reality here that you can embrace that would help you feel better, that would help you take this less personally, and that would help you, at least in this very moment, relax? And I truly didn't get it that when I was that young. I don't think I, it was possible for me to get it. When we're young, we take everything personally. We absorb everything. We're sort of told about ourselves. We can't imagine that someone is dealing with their own traumas, their own feelings, and that whatever they're saying or doing is uh, just an expression of themselves, a projection of themselves onto us. We don't get that. But now we're adults, us millennials, and I do think we have the opportunity to do that. And I think we have a responsibility to do that. It's my belief, the way that I operate in the world is that I do take responsibility for my own life and for my role in the larger scheme of things, in the larger story of things. Life, hopefully, will go on uh, longer than I am alive. And I will influence people who will then have babies and who will make friends and who will influence those people. I'm conscious of that. We all play a role here Um in a myriad of different sort of like intimate, interpersonal, and more broad and collective ways. And we don't have to look at these um, ways in which we're quote unquote special, right? We don't have to look at like our role in the collective as any sort of a egotistical or narcissistic thing. We can just see it for its role that it plays in the group. So let's say you live in a communal environment and you're physically quite strong, more so than the other people in the group. You don't need to sit there and gloat and feel super special that you're strong because there's someone else in the group that's really intelligent. There's someone else in the group that's a really good storyteller. There's someone else in the group that's a really good hunter. You're special in a way, but if you either pump yourself up about how special you are more so than other people, or you refuse to acknowledge that role, if you operate some from somewhere, uh, some false humility stance, right, where like, oh, I'm not very special, like my physical strength doesn't really matter, who else is going to haul the pieces of wood to the fire in your group? right? Like denying your purpose and your gift is also not beneficial. So it's not um, appropriate or healthy to feel special compared to someone else, because I think all of our roles are equally special, just different. Uh, but it's also not okay to deny the role you have. So while I don't think I was denying my own role or denying myself or denying my gifts, in this podcast. I do think that this podcast would do better in the future and that I would do better as a person in the future if I acknowledge more about myself, if I acknowledge more about my generation and help all of you to do the same. We don't need to deny or be embarrassed about or ashamed about the fact that, yeah, maybe we are more sensitive. Maybe we do get triggered more often Maybe we do prioritize rest more than other people and um, 
Maybe we know that we deserve more than what our parents got. And if you want to call me lazy and entitled and um, sensitive and triggered, then okay. I, I, it sucks that the rest of the world has one idea about what those things can be. It sucks when millennials do embody those more negative shadowy sides. But we don't all have to do that. And Although it took me a while to feel proud of being a millennial, very much as a result of having this podcast and meeting and interacting with all of you, like I have not met ever cooler, more interesting, vulnerable, intelligent, curious, just fucking awesome people. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of you in person. I've had the pleasure of talking to even more of you remotely. And it's really thanks to that mirror for myself of seeing how these qualities were embodied in all of you that allowed me to feel less ashamed about them for myself and to increase my own meaning and in increase my own nuance and um, broaden my definition of myself and this generation as a whole and why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing and how we can help. I have been blabbing for an hour and 20 minutes. That's a lot of time. So I'm going to leave you there. Um, and next time we will uh, pick up with our regularly scheduled interview programming. Thank you all again for supporting me in this project and for um, showing me so many more possibilities about how amazing people and communities could be uh, than I really had any idea about <laughs> prior to starting this podcast. And this community continues to grow and evolve in new ways. And it's been wonderful to help all of you um, promote uh, your projects and what you're passionate about and just really support each other in all of these endeavors and in creating a generation that um, really is having to walk through some pretty murky shit. But uh, the fact that we're all able to find light and meaning and purpose within that space has been endlessly inspiring to me. Um, and I truly cannot imagine where this might go in another year or two. If you would like to support the podcast, um, there are lots of options. Uh, if you do not have any extra money to spare and to support the uh, podcast financially, you can go into iTunes, hit subscribe, scroll all the way down past all the episodes, leave some stars and a review. This helps the podcast show up more in search results um, and allows people who I ask to be on the show to see that people actually listen to the show, that they like it and find it meaningful. So in the end, that really helps you guys um, where I am able to find more prominent people to come on. If you do have some extra money to spare uh, and you would like to get even further uh, embedded into this community, I uh, encourage you to go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, I've recently added a ton of additional perks for patrons. Uh, so for a few extra dollars a month, you can get access to all sorts of things. Uh, first of all, there's like playlists and lists of recommendations. Um, we have a book club. We're in the middle right now of reading Cosmos and Psyche. Lots of time to still join that book club if you'd like. 
this is a book about astrology um, and also just cosmology in general. I'm really, really enjoying it so far. I'm on page 50. We're taking a while to read this book because it's quite dense. So we're going to meet together via Zoom at the end of January uh, to discuss. So if you'd like to join that, details are at Patreon. There's also WhatsApp group chats. Uh, the third group is getting close to filling up, um, but there I will create more of them. Uh, so this is groups of like 20 or 30 listeners where you can all communicate with one another and uh, talk about whatever podcasts or just what's going on in your life, um, things you've watched, issues you're dealing with. It's a very mutually su supportive kind of a thing. And I'm um, just, it's been awesome to just get to know more of you through that space, but also see you get to know each other. That's been extremely rewarding. Uh, what else? I also are, we're about to start patron led workshops and seminars. So if you are a patron and you have a specific skill, um, that you would like to teach other people in sort of a casual, non super pressure kind of a way, uh, we have people that are going to be talking about like foraging and outdoor skills and astrology. Uh, and these are all going to be led by your fellow patrons. So that's a really cool thing. All of those workshops are going to be free. They're going to be donation only, and your donation is going to go to whoever the individual is who's teaching the workshop, not me. Uh, but again, that donation is optional as long as you are a patron. I have a contact list where you can put your contact information and your interests uh, so people in your area or with similar interests can reach out to you. Um, yeah, lots of perks. And, and I think I'm going to be adding more <laughs> soon because I'm crazy. Um, anyway, I've been talking for so long and I feel like my words are all, um, jumbled, but if you want to learn more about all of that, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S is where you get all of that information. Um, I think that's it. I think I will leave you there. I'm going to play you out with the old story by Trevor Hall, um, which applies quite a bit to this episode. And I think once you listen to it, you will know why. Talk to you all next week. Let's all keep trudging, <laughs> trudging through the mud. And uh, yeah, mud's not that bad when you can um, trudge through it with your friends, right? It's a lot better, at least. Love you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for being a part of this amazing, growing community. Talk to you next time. You could play it out But all of it's in your head Holding on with both two hands Gotta let go now Is it really you Knocking at your own door Always looking for something Just gotta let that old story go 
just gotta let that good river flow into your heart. It's a start. Gotta let that old story go. You just gotta let that old story go. 